Hello and welcome to Wandering Through the Word. Today's program is brought to you by your host, Noah Dennis. And on the other side, we have... It's Pastor Dan. Yay. Welcome back to the podcast, Pastor Dan. Yeah. We are picking up with Romans chapter 5. We've been building up to this. Uh, A lot of... uh, what we've been talking about it has been preparing us for this. We are excited. We've got a lot to talk about today. Um, but first, I got to say, it is so hot today. <laughs> it is so yeah, hot. It's really hot, actually. I don't know what's going I don't think yesterday was that hot, but you know how it is in SoCal. Every day is a different season and all of them are summer. So <laughs> it's pretty intense today. Yeah, I've got my fan turned off so that you don't get any fan noise in the back. And it is... It is like a sauna in this room. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm sure that you guys are very comfortable in your cars uh, with your AC all the way up. Uh, well, we hope that today's program is going to be a really big blessing to you guys. Uh, we'll just go ahead and pray, and we'll jump right into today's podcast. Dear God, thank you so much for what a lovely and beautiful day today is. I pray that as we open up your word into Romans 5, that you would open up our hearts and minds as well. We pray that you would help us to understand this amazing hope that we have in Christ and help us to put our identity in Christ and Christ alone. We pray these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. But let's let's do some recap first. What have we been building up to in Romans one through four? Um, well, for us to just kind of keep this uh, moving forward, because that's kind of what Romans is doing right now. Remember, we said in the beginning that it has two main themes: that the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of salvation, a power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And so we've been talking about the gospel as this power of God this for salvation. And we've also been talking about the righteous shall live by faith. And it really pushed through into Romans chapter 3. And then last week we went to Romans chapter 4, where right after 3, we talked about this gospel, this righteousness by faith. And then last week we talked about how it's kind of always been this way. This is not like a different faith uh, than what we found in the Old Testament. We saw all the way back to Abraham all the way back to David. So God's covenant has always been righteousness by faith. God's uh, way of saving us has always been righteousness by faith. Mm. So Romans 1, 2, 3, 4 have all been about how the righteous live by faith. It's always been this way. It's not our works that make us righteous, but it's by grace through faith. This is all very important stuff. And yet we've been saying it's all built up to chapter 5. What makes chapter 5 stand out so much? We, we keep saying this over and over and over. Romans 5, whether, I mean, it's not a very popular uh, chapter. Like, mm. like if you ask people, like, what's your favorite chapter in the Bible? Probably like Psalm 23 or like mm. Romans 8, but almost no one says Romans 5. But Romans 5 is kind of out there quietly carrying the book of Romans. We could even argue that Romans 5 is the the heart or the center of Romans. And that's what we're going to go into today. Let's dive in. How are we breaking up the passage today? So Romans 5 can be kind of split into two sections. Uh, It's kind of easy to follow visually. Uh, Well, I know you're driving, so please don't follow it visually. (laughs) But it's verses 1 through 11 and then 12 through 21. So it's kind of like cut in half. But both of these chunks are very heavy and they have a lot of information. So we're going to split this into smaller sections. Like imagine like 
if you were eating like the greatest steak in the world, <laughs> you're still not going to put the whole prime rib in your mouth. Like you would choke. <laughs> like it's just way too much there. And it's kind of like that with Romans 5. You, you have to kind of like cut it into pieces to really enjoy and to pay attention to everything. So with that, let's start with Pastor Noah reading verses 1 and 2. All right, we'll dive right into this filet mignon. Uh, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Uh, these are verses 1 to 2, and they set us up for what we're going to talk about today. What do you see here in verses 1 to 2? Uh, well, once again, it's an introduction bringing us kind of back into this idea of justification by faith, which was always there. I mean, it was a big part of chapter four. However, um, once again, we talked about Abraham and David and things like that, and we showed it through their lives. But now we're going back into the mechanic of the gospel. And so we're kind of like where we left off at the end of chapter three, righteousness by faith alone. Mm -hmm. And so Paul's coming back to his main point. And with that, I think... There's a lot of beautiful things here, but the most important thing I want to point out, and you can point out uh, different things that you see as well, is the word peace. Mm -hmm. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the end of the first verse. And we have it because we have been justified by faith. Now, the reason why I want to hit on the word peace is let me ask you, Pastor Noah, like, what do you really think of hmm. normally when you think of the word peace? Hmm. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, peace, um, I think of maybe like two countries come together and they decide not to fight anymore. Or yeah. maybe if I'm making peace with my friend, you know, uh, maybe I ask for their forgiveness and yeah. we apologize, we make up, we have peace. Yeah, so the way you described it is perfectly how most people see it, including myself. Like growing up in this Western world, heavily influenced by a lot of Western thinking, we generally think of peace as the absence of negatives, whether it's absence of war, absence of strife, suffering, the absence of negative things. And that's not a bad definition of peace. That's probably a very good definition of peace. Hmm. Uh, however, even though the New Testament and Romans is written in Greek, you have to keep in mind it's actually just Hebrew disguised as Greek. It's almost like in Halloween, like Hebrew just pretend like in a Greek costume. It's pretending to be Greek, but it's actually a Hebrew, like the Hebrew mindset. That's how they were raised. And Paul being coming from a Pharisaic background, Paul has this background of, of very Hebrew mindset. In the Hebrew mind, the idea of peace is not just the absence of negative, but the abundance of positive. It's this idea of shalom, of well-being. It's not just we don't have war. It's we actually have this well-being with us. And that's the main thing I want us to think about uh, when we think of this peace we have with God here. So you're saying this idea of peace goes back to the Hebrew word shalom. Uh, let's dive into that a little bit more. What exactly is shalom? Well, I mean, there's a lot of words in Christianity that we use a lot, and uh, they're, we use in so many different ways, it's kind of hard to define, so I'm just going to make it really, really short. I guess you could kind of think of it kind of like, it is well, but think of it also like a, like a wholeness, like a holistic, making complete, restore, whole, like that. It's just lots of good things rolled into one. Mm, I see. And so what does having shalom with God mean for us? The reason why this is important is because it's not only that 
this justification of faith has taken away our sins, our condemnation that takes away our negative. It's mm. added this positive well-being to it, mm. this positive, this positive life, this positive holistic factor in our walk with God. In fact, that's why it says in the next verse that we obtain this this access. We have this access by faith into this grace. And so it leads to great rejoicing. Amen. Praise God. I think it's also important to note that this peace comes after being justified by faith. In fact, even Paul says it's a result of being justified by faith. So in other words, if we have faith, we have shalom with God. I think it's important to take a big picture view here and ask ourselves the question, how does faith and peace fit together. Chapters 1 to 4 have all been about justification by faith. Now, chapter 5, Paul's starting a whole new topic, peace with God. So how are these two things fitting together in Paul's argument here in chapter 5? After he says this whole idea of we have peace through the faith and God has done all these things for us relationally and things like that, it's very interesting. Verses 3 and 5 almost seem like they're from a different passage. So -hmm. can you read verse 3 and 5 and then we'll explain how it's all linked together. Verse 3, not only that, So not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God from verse 2, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen. So like, this is a very popular set of verses. Like, I'm sure you guys have either Mm -hmm. seen it, and people even get tattoos of this verse. So it's a very popular, beloved verse. I mean, set of verses. However, if you just listen to what we said earlier, it seems to come out of nowhere. Like we're talking about justification by faith. And all of a sudden he's like, yeah, and guess what? Not only are we justified by faith, we rejoice in sufferings. <laughs> it's like, Paul, what is this? Is this like your just greatest hits? Like, is this just like, where are you getting this? Like, And The connection from verses 1 through 11, this whole first section that we said, it's going to be very subtle, but very beautiful. It's going to build on top of each other. So we just talk about this peace as this abundance of positive, not just this absence of negative. And what it shows is that we have this peace even when there are negatives in our life. Hmm. And that's why it starts going into this piece is not just this brittle thing that shatters every time life gets hard or there's suffering or strife, but it goes as far as say we can rejoice in our suffering Mm -hmm. because ultimately it's not about getting rid of X, Y, and Z. It's not about getting an easier life. It's not about getting rid of the negatives, but it's this living positive within our hearts, this peace we have in Jesus. Now, before we go any further, is there anything you would like to add? Um, Yeah, this whole part of this chapter is moving Paul's argument forward. He's already established that we're justified by faith, but he wants to show us that like, there is so much more than just being justified. Uh, I think I heard this illustration once. Um, we could think of our justification as the removal of a debt. So if we imagine ourselves, um, you know, we are just millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars in debt, you know, and uh, God comes along and he sees our debt and he looks at our debt and he declares that our debt is gone. That would be a justification. And that's a wonderful thing within and of itself. 
But that only puts us right there back at zero. I mean, we have our debt removed, which is an amazing thing, but we have nothing to live off of. We still exist in poverty. Well, Paul is going to show from here on out that it's not just our debt that's been removed. There's been so much more added into our account, not just removal of debt, but so much more added on top of that with that we are not just free from our debt, but we are rich in God, rich in Christ. And these are some of the things that we are rich in. Amen. And exactly like you said, like we are so rich in Christ. We are so blessed in Christ. And that's why this is so perfect because we don't always feel that way. And that's what verse 3 and verse 5 is really tackling. Like We are, but we don't always feel that way. Mm. But what it teaches us here is that now the negatives, now the, the suffering, the strife, all these things that threaten to rob our peace at first can no longer rob our peace. In fact, Paul would go as, as far as to say in this passage, the suffering, the strife, and the negatives, it strengthens our peace. It gives us more power to our peace. And the reason why is because it makes us cling even tighter to our hope in God. And so suffering doesn't destroy Christian hope. It's, it tests Christian hope and it strengthens it because it makes us cling tighter uh, to, to God alone. And so the end result is greater well-being, greater peace in our hearts, not less. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it, it goes as far as to think like suffering. First of all, it keeps you from feeling like you're okay. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, you run more to God. And while you're on that road to God, sometimes our hearts are hindered. And what suffering does is it not only does it make us feel like we're not okay, it also destroys the faith we had in our idols. Because we thought maybe this idol could save us, this idol could keep, and the suffering shatters any hope you had in idols. And so in all these things, suffering actually enhances the peace that we have seen in verse one. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I do want to say it's not necessary for us to believe that suffering in itself is a good thing. I don't think that's right. Mm-hmm. I would never go as far as to say hurt is good. Mm-hmm. I don't think the Bible necessarily wants us to go that far either. But what we are saying is that in Christ, hurt and pain, which is an inevitable part of this world, have meaning, have purpose, and have direction. And sometimes that is encouraging. It's not meaningless. It's not empty. But actually, God is using it to sanctify us. Mm -hmm. And so that's a powerful thing. Amen. Amen. I think that's so encouraging, so empowering. Our suffering is not meaningless. Yeah, and actually, let me just keep piling on the good news because that's what Paul is doing. Amen. Let me just keep piling it on. And so naturally you think, oh my goodness, that is that is like blessing. Yeah, God is doing something in my heart by destroying my faith in idols and letting me know I'm not okay. But you know what? It goes even further because you might be thinking, oh, but P- Pastor Dan, Pastor Noah, I'm so weak when I suffer, I don't rejoice. Like I feel too weak to endure and be faithful. In fact, I don't rejoice in my suffering. I I curse, you know. I I get bitter. I get angry. I lose my peace pretty. If my well being turns into like, you know, wicked being or something, I don't know. And so they might think I have no hope because my suffering has not produced that for me. Mm. You still have hope. 
The hope is even if you can't clean tighter, verse 6, the next section says, while we were still weak Mm. at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Mm. So you might be beating yourself up like, I am so weak that maybe for other people, suffering produces good in them, but suffering cannot produce good for me. However, what you see here is whatever you cannot do through your suffering, whatever way you cannot be sanctified, like you are falling short, God's love still reaches out to you. And that's how it connects now with the next section that we see in verse 6 through 11. And so it's a beautiful thing. It keeps building our hope. So can you read 6 through 11? And we'll jump into that. Yeah, let's keep going on. Verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. So you see how encouraging that is because he's saying like, listen, like, if God loved you this much while you're weak and without God, how much more will he help you and be for you now that you are in the blood? And so you might be thinking, oh, I cannot produce good because, you know, in suffering, I am not growing in character. But even in that weakness, you still have hope because it was in your weakness that Christ died for you. It was in your weakness you were already loved. So if you were already loved while you were in your weakness, how much more now that you are in his blood? And so the hope just keeps adding on. Amen. Yeah, I love that passage. I mean, if God gave us Jesus, I mean, what else will he not give to us? Yeah, and like we said, it it seems kind of subtle. It's hard to see how they're all connected. Verses 1 and 2, verses 3 through 5, and 6 through 11. But once you start seeing that, oh my goodness, it's one of the most powerful like gospel hope tracks that goes into your heart. And that's why you can actually almost uh, section, this whole section, you could almost title it verses 1 through 11 as our unshakable hope. Mm. It's this the theme of our unshakable hope, whether you are suffering, but you're growing, or whether in your suffering, you feel like you're too weak to grow. In every way, we have hope because we have peace, because we are justified by faith. And so that's the uniting theme of verses 1 through 11. It's very powerful. Yeah, these are direct contrasts to chapter 3, where there is no hope for humanity. Yeah, in that first half, dude, it gets pretty dark. (laughs) Yeah. So chapters 1 through 3 show us how there is no hope, no hope, at least in humanity, how humans can't be righteous on their own accord. Uh, But now all of a sudden we have this justification through Christ. Now we have this hope in God. What is this hope in Christ that Paul's talking about here? Uh, Well, first, we actually see an analogy in verse 7. And the analogy is when uh, Paul starts writing that maybe a good person might die or someone might die for a good person or a righteous person. And it's an analogy we understand. Um, I don't think that I'm going too far when I say 
amongst most people, most cultures, maybe the highest form of true love is what we would recognize as sacrificial love. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's too much of a stretch. Like we all recognize a sacrifice as a real validator of true love or validation of true love. And so this is an analogy that we all understand that um, Paul is using. And what Paul is saying that we all understand the the trueness of love when someone's really willing to lay down their life for someone who's worthy, someone who's good, someone who's righteous. And that is something that we all understand. But the thing with analogies is that when it comes to God, analogies kind of start to break down because there's no real scale. Like You can't scale this up. The example I often use is like, imagine like, if you were standing under a waterfall like Niagara Falls with like a somehow a magical unbreakable thimble. Mm-hmm. And if you could just kind of like stick this thimble under Niagara Falls and you get like a small amount of Niagara Falls inside that thimble. And then you're kind of like, this, this is Niagara Falls, but it's like this tiny thimble thing. And you know, what are you missing? The rest of Niagara Falls. <laughs> and it's kind of like that with God's love. Like a lot of times our hearts are so small that we think w- what our hearts can understand is actually all of God's love, but it's not. Our, our hearts are kind of like that thimble. It's kind of like it can't capture, it can't contain these things. And, and so that's the problem with analogies. But even with that analogy, what Paul is saying is we are amazed when someone's willing to lay down their life for another. And in, generally that person is deserving mm-hmm. how much more should we be amazed twofold by the gospel because in the gospel the person laying down their life is not another person but god mm-hmm. god himself laying down his life so that's the first infinity like multiplier of amazement and the second is he's laying down his life for sinners for the ungodly and it's kind of like what we said last time, like God justifies the ungodly. And so it's a it's an analogy we can't understand. There's a scale, there's a magnificence that we can't understand. And so this is the level of love and hope and peace that we have. And that's why Paul, like when he writes to the Ephesians, Paul prays that God would give us the strength to understand how much we are loved. Because we don't have the, the mental, capa- the emotional, mental, spiritual capacity to know how much he loves us. Yeah. So it really, really demonstrates the, well, I guess we just get a very small picture of it, but the magnitude of God's love and God's goodness is captured here. Ultimately, what Paul is saying is this leads us to a hope that we have something to look forward to, something to spur us onward, that there is something out there, a reason to keep going, to keep trying, even though there's a lot of suffering, a lot of negatives in life, that there's always this bigger thing to look forward to. Yeah, bringing it back to the the hope, like we said, uh, unshakable hope is kind of like the theme of this verses 1 through 11. And then we see the hope is twofold here in uh, verses uh, 9 and 10, it says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Oh, wait, technical difficulties. My my cat is here on the, on the, uh, trying to speak into the mic. Suki, do you have something you, you have to say about Romans? Meow, 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 meow. 
<laughs> and so what, what Suki was saying is that if you look in verse 9, uh, you'll notice that it says that we have been justified by his blood and we've been saved from the wrath of God. But in verse 10, it says we've been reconciled with God uh, by the death of his son. And these are two terms that are talking about the same thing, but highlighting uh, different parts of it. In justification, when it says we have been justified by his blood, it's talking about the legal aspect of salvation, how the wrath of God, kind of like what you're talking about before, about the debt, it's been paid for, the punishment has been paid. However, reconciliation is more of a relationship term. Hmm. And so in the second, so it's both. Legally, we are made right, but relationally, we're made right too. And so we're brought into this new family, this new love, this new life. And that's an incredibly important thing because now we're actually going to start seeing in verses 12 and on, which is the next big part. Remember, we said Romans 5 can be split into two sections. Uh, when you look at Romans uh, 5 and split into two sections, the second part almost shows how relationship is our justification. Reconciliation is our justification in a very... Uh, unusual way that we're not used to but it's actually a very good transition way to move into the next big uh the second half of romans 5 mm-hmm. all right let's move into and that second half all of that was actually what suki said so <laughs> very very good stuff for a cat <laughs> all right so that's a perfect transition into the second half of romans 5 this goes from verse 12 all the way through the end but we'll break it into a few smaller parts the first part verses 12 through 14 here we go Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. That's verses 12 through 14. What do we see here? What's the transition yeah, so like we said in the beginning, um, where we left off is left off is that we said there's this great hope, and ultimately this great hope, it makes us right with God. It gives us this peace with God, this well-being with God, and in the end, we can almost uh, split it in two ways, in justification and in reconciliation. We saw that in verse 9 and 10, justification once again being legally and reconciliation being uh, relationally. And then now we're moving on, almost seeing how through this reconciliation actually does lead to our righteousness. How um, in like a non-technical way, reconciliation is our justification. And that's what we're going to start seeing here. The me- mm. This is like the mechanic mm. of salvation. This is like the the mechanic of justification. Now, I need to pause right now because my cat is moving around again. And uh, <laughs> Hello. <laughs> yeah. so you guys can't see at home, but... She- I'm on a webcam with uh, Pastor Noah, and Suki just looks straight into the camera to say, uh, give her greetings to him. It's very hot in LA, and I think the the cats are kind of restless. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now she got tired of me. Okay. Um, So we're going to see how reconciliation also leads to our justification. There's this weird chunk that we're about to get to in Romans 5, and it's going to be very important. Like I said, this is like the mechanic of uh, the mechanism, the, the the center, the possibly the heart of Romans, and um, it sounds confusing, and it and it is, and it's going to be actually um, very difficult for us to understand what it is, what it's saying, because of the culture we grew up in. Hmm. Romans twelve through the end 
I mean, Romans 5, chapter 5, verses 12 to the end, it's very confusing for us because this is not a way we naturally think of it. So with that, let's just look at verse the first verse, then we'll go into the difficulty. And the first verse is pretty simple. Just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so it starts off simply enough. In fact, if you look carefully, now this is a very technical portion. Once again, we always say there's technical one technical thing. And we're about to get into it. And here's the start of the technical thing. Verse 12 is actually a chiasm, which just means that there's parallels going from outside to inside. So it starts with sin producing. It moves to death. Then it moves to all die. And it moves to because all sin. And so what it's doing is it's creating this uh, unbreakable parallel bond between sin and death. And because all sin, all die. And so we're starting to get technical now. And it's very interesting because then it says, you know, indeed, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. And so it starts getting really, really, really confusing. And then it says, but death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, I want to ask you, Pastor Noah, what do you think Paul is doing here? Hmm. I think uh, he's showing us how death is just something that's passed down, uh, and it has nothing to do with the law. It's just something that has been passed down because everybody has sinned, and it's the consequence of all sinners. Amen. I mean, that's exactly what it is. In fact, the term that we've... Uh, often used is called original sin. It's not a term that we that's used as much anymore, but the idea still stands, original sin. And from Adam, because we were all in Adam, rooted in Adam, he's our representative, also the, the head of all of us. All of us are descended. So imagine like a family tree, there's only one root, Adam. Hmm. And so we are all connected to Adam. We are all found in Adam. And so this original sin has passed on from Adam to all of us. And verse 13 and 14, like we just read, is, it does sound very confusing because it starts talking about, you know, like I just read, you know, uh, there is sin uh, before the law was given and sin is not counted where there is no law. Basically, long story short, what it's trying to say is, yes, we can only truly identify sin through law because we don't know what's wrong without the law however we know original sin passes through all of us because even without the law still death reigned between adam and moses even though they did not have the law death still reigned and so it's pushing forward this idea of original sin passing through all of us Mm -hmm. yeah you're right in that it's so uh, different from our culture. If Adam's our representative, I mean, I didn't vote for Adam. <laughs> well, he got the electoral votes, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you're right in that it's passed down, um, not in a, a representative way that we would think of it, but almost like this family relation that all of us, because we're all just related as humans, have this sin aspect passed down through all of us. Yeah. It's, it's, something that we don't really naturally find in our Western culture. And I'm going to identify myself in this too. Uh, for those of you uh, who don't know my background, I am Korean American, uh, but I was born and raised in Los Angeles. And so I would identify more with a Western mindset rather than an Eastern one. But 
including myself in this, in this Western world, we tend to see our identity almost individually, almost as if every man was an island. Mm-hmm. Um, but according to the Bible, there's this concept of human solidarity. There's this concept of of a corporate identity that we all share together as humans. And this corporate identity is from our originator, which in this case would be Adam. And so through Adam, not just through his sin and all that, but through his fallen nature, which we all inherit, and through his fallenness as a representative, original sin is actually present in all of us. And people might say, well, that doesn't necessarily like sound fair to my culture. That doesn't sound fair to how I was raised. <laughs> like what you said, like, I don't want Adam to represent me. <laughs> and so one thing that the Bible does not do here is the Bible does not necessarily, it doesn't explain the, mechan- the mechanics of how original sin works for humanity. So we're not going to go into it here. But what it does do is that it uses original sin as an explanation of humanity. Like, why are humans the way we are? Like, why are we clearly, obviously built so wonderfully and so amazing? And why do we so often fall so greatly? Why are we so filled with so much corruption and destructive thoughts and hate? Why do we so often fall to doing terrible things, the lowest common denominator when we are clearly and obviously made so incredibly why do we keep choosing bad instead of good why is our nature so corrupted and the bible here uses original sin as that explanation it doesn't explain original sin for for humanity once again but it does use original sin as the explanation of humanity's state so I guess the important part here is that original sin is going to be crucial to Paul's argument in the second half of Romans 5. Um, what does he do with this idea of original sin? What does he take yeah. us? So if we only focus on the, the idea of original sin, then we get kind of depressed because it just makes <laughs> us feel like we're really bad all the time and there's nothing you can do about it. But actually, that's not Paul's point, exactly what you're saying. He's only emphasizing original sin to emphasize the identity and the idea of a corporate identity, Mm -hmm. an identity that it comes from your family's originator. The only reason why Paul brings up original sin is to really emphasize our identity is in our corp in our family um, originator, this corporate identity. And the reason why Paul is doing that is Paul is going to show that there's actually a second family that we are identified by. And we see that in verse 5 through 17. So can you read that for us? Yeah, verse 15 through 17. Here we go. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Yeah, so it shows this idea of human solidarity and this representative which worked unfairly against us. Mm. 
is the mechanism through how it now works unfairly for us. Hmm. Like what once worked against us because we could not stand under the law now works unfairly for us because of grace. And that's the coolest thing. Now we have unfairly be put in a new family with a new corporate identity that we could have never deserved. In the same way we didn't deserve being born. Actually, we're human. We did deserve being born under Adam. But in a different way, we are unfairly born into Christ. Uh In the best way, I mean unfairly. In the way that you can't earn it. It's not by merit. But by the grace that we keep saying, the grace of God. He brings us into his family. He brings us into his identity, his corporate identity. And so it's a beautiful thing. Like once where we saw only condemnation, now we only see salvation. We only see grace. And it's it's incredible. This is what he's doing. We are now all identified by being in Jesus Christ. This is where the justification and the reconciliation, remember we talked about the hope, the peace in the first section. This is where the hope and the peace come from. By being brought into his family, we are identified completely by Jesus Christ now. And that's an incredible thing. And that's what Paul is rejoicing in here. Amen. That is so incredible. We're no longer identified as sinners. No longer is our identity sin, but our identity is Jesus Christ. We've been brought from the realm of death into the realm of life. And the contrast here is just so, so clear-cut. Um, one man's sin brought death for many. Uh, one man's act of righteousness brings life for many. Uh, and this contrast is so clear, so obvious here, what Paul is trying to do. Yeah, and it, it's, there's a contrast in terms of intensity as well. One sin brought condemnation for all. But if you think about it, if that's the work of one sin, imagine the work of all sins. <laughs> that's a lot of condemnation. <laughs> However, Jesus is so powerful, he could swallow all of that up. All that sin and all that condemnation undone by one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is more powerful. Jesus is more magnanimous. Like he does, he overturns the entire thing by himself. There is a greater glory and power for Jesus Christ. And so the work of the first Adam, which brought death and condemnation, is small and overturned and overwhelmed by the work of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And it's so glorious. Jesus Christ is so much greater. And he is our identity. And that's what the gospel is rejoicing in. And that's what we meant earlier. Uh, that's what I meant earlier when I said in a non-technical way, you could kind of see how our relationship actually is our justification here because our relationship is now in Jesus, not in Adam. Our identity now is under Jesus, in Jesus, in Christ, not in Adam. And so because we are in Christ, we have all that hope and well-being. Yeah, and all this leads us to the very last part of this passage where Paul's going to summarize everything up together in verses 18 through 21. Uh, So I'm going to go ahead and read the very last part of this passage, and we'll talk about this too. Verse 18, Therefore, 
As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yeah, and so... um Verse 18 and 19 kind of summarize what we've been going over. So I'm just going to skip to the ending, the last two verses, verse 20 and 21. And so we just kind of covered this whole idea of um, through grace, through Christ. And verse 20 has this very weird uh, verse. It says, the law came in to increase the trespass. And that's weird. And so I just want to clarify, it does not mean that God gave the law so we would sin more. That's not what it's saying. Think of it more like the law was given, yes, to increase, in a sense, increase condemnation in a sense, but not in the sense of increasing it by making more of it, but by revealing more the intensity of it. That's probably what it's probably meaning, to increase the intensity of the sinfulness of sin. I think that's what it's doing here. Uh, because what is what the law does is, the law doesn't make you sin, but what the law does is it teaches you what's right. So when you do what's wrong, it makes your sinfulness even more sinful. Mm-hmm. And so through that way, you know, it makes it clear to everyone the intensity and the sinfulness of sin. Why does God do that? Is it because God wants us to feel more bad? Is he like a college, you know, like colleges these days, like always increasing tuition to raise our debt? Like That's not necessarily the reason why it's, you know, he... We need to know the depth of our sinfulness to know the fullness and the the gloriousness of our salvation and our grace. You know, the end of God's plan is not for us to have a guilty, burdened conscience. The end of God's plan is for grace to abound and for us to rejoice. Mm-hmm. And that's why it ends with grace abounded all the more. The point of it all is not to just for the sake of increasing condemnation, but increasing the joy and forgiveness. And the reason why he does that is because in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also so may reign through righteousness. And lastly, think of this kind of visually. Um, imagine a kingdom of perfect righteousness. Like when you imagine a kingdom of perfect righteousness, you would naturally imagine someplace, I don't know, like very strict, maybe like uh, 1984, like very, like you know, thought police and like everyone's watching over you there's like an inquisition going on all the time and you know you can't ever think bad thoughts and or whatever you're in trouble or and so that's probably what you think very strict very uh everyone's very miserable but everyone tries to do the right thing and stuff like that but that's not the image god gives us the image of a kingdom of righteousness that god gives us well what reigns in the kingdom of righteousness grace and it's it's interesting it goes against everything we think of in the kingdom of righteousness and it's because this kingdom of righteousness as we've been reading in chapter three and chapter four is a kingdom open to the ungodly it invites the ungodly and ultimately it justifies the ungodly through grace and so god's kingdom of righteousness is one where grace reigns And so it's a place of incredible love and freedom, not restriction and punishment, Mm 
but actually love and freedom. And that's what we've been saved into. And it's a great hope and it's it's a great joy. Amen. That's our hope, this abounding grace that we have in Christ. Yeah. So I guess just to uh, wrap it up with a little bit of like application portion, like how could you apply this to your life today? Well, I think the first section, we covered that already, but I just want to remind everyone that verses 1 through 11, like we said, we have this peace, this well-being with God, which is not the absence of negatives, but the addition, the abundance of positives. Therefore, when the negatives come, when the sufferings come in verse 3 and verse 5 through verse 5, um, it strengthens our hope because it removes our confidence in idols and it removes our, our, our laziness. It removes our, our selfish thoughts that we're okay. Like it removes all of that and it makes us cling only to our, our hope, our, our true hope, which is Jesus Christ. And so the first uh, application there would be is if you are going through that kind of suffering, that kind of negative, don't let it rob you of your hope, but let it strengthen your hope by destroying your confidence in idols, destroying your confidence in I'm feeling okay enough. And let it make you cling only to to the hope in Jesus Christ. But once again, the second hope that we saw there is if you feel even too weak for that, find hope in verse 6 through 11. If you feel too weak to fight for hope, verses 6 through 11, while we were still weak, God loved us. And as we said, if God loved us while we were weak and we didn't have him, how much more will he still love us when we are weak and we have him right now? How much more will he love us and run to us and be on our side when we are weak and we have him already? And so you see, it, it adds to increase our hope. It adds to increase our joy. He's not just this angry, disappointed person, God. He is completely for us and even when we we're weak without him he loved us so of course when we are weak and his we are his children we should expect more love not less um, with that the second section uh, like we said this whole part of this relationship i want i think the it's very important for us to see there are many tribes in this life which we can identify ourselves with maybe it in, it might be like through Adam, through our sins, but it might be through what you accomplish at work. Like that might be the tribe you use to identify yourself. Maybe it's a certain way you look or a uh, way you dress or your socioeconomic status, your job, um, your, your place in life, your relational status, all these different tribes we could identify ourselves in. But ultimately, all of them fall short. And we need to find ourselves relationally, our identity, our human solidarity in Jesus Christ. He needs to be our identity. And we need to let go of all these other ways we identify ourselves and find it all in just my identity is in Jesus Christ. Oh, real quick. Lastly, with that too, sometimes we try to find our identity with just individualism. I'm my own island. If you are your own island, you're not going to find hope in Christ <laughs> because there's not much hope in yourself. You must find your hope and your identity in Jesus Christ. So I think in Romans 5, it's a heavily theological chapter, very applicable to the heart today. And that's all we have for you guys today. Thank you guys so much for listening to Wandering Through the Word. I'm going to close us in a short word of prayer. Let's pray. 
Dear God, thank you so much for giving us your word and for giving us this promise through Jesus Christ. We're not just free from our sin. God, we have so much more. We have so much more in you. We have life. We have shalom. Uh, we have hope in Jesus Christ. And God, help us, God, uh, to look to you, to look to Christ, even when life is difficult, even when we feel so weak in our suffering, in our hopelessness, God, that we always have hope in Jesus Christ. And uh, help us also to not place our identity in anything less than Jesus Christ, but our identity is in you. Uh, we live in your abounding grace and nothing less, God. Uh, we pray all these things in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen. 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 Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you guys next week with Romans chapter 6.